listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. We are currently in our Lent series called Bloom, and uh, we are reading the Lenten readings. And uh, I'm going to be preaching off them again today, but I wanted to begin with one, which would be my main focus for today, uh, which comes to us from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So you can open your Bibles if you would like. Uh, It's uh, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. One of the great understatements of Scripture. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the highest, sorry, to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels to concern you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, is it also written, do not put, your Lord, put the Lord your God to the test? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. During Lent, we follow Jesus to the cross, and this week we follow him into the barren deserts outside of what is known and comfortable, where Jesus, like many of us this Lent, is fasting. Devoid of community and food, he is faced with a test, and this test comes when Jesus is at his weakest. And with the comforts of home far behind him, the tempter enters stage left. When we pick up Matthew's gospel, we're presented with a family tree which lets us know that Jesus is born from the line of David, a family tree which prophecy tells us that the Messiah, the sent one from God, will come from. We read that he's conceived of the Holy Spirit, that he is God and human. We learn of his humble birth, which is missed by the powerful and the corrupt, yet is heralded by lowly shepherds and wise men from afar. We learn of his baptism by John the Baptist, in which the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and which a voice from the heaven proclaims, this is my son, who I love, with him I am well pleased. All signs that as you begin this gospel, that there's something deeply special about this young man, just beginning his 30s. 
But then a seemingly rude interruption as he is plucked from these affirmations and adulations. And Jesus is sent by the Spirit, not towards the capitals and centers of influence, but instead into the Judean wilderness, a dead zone, brutal and barren with the scorching hellish heat. Into this, this young, hungry, physically weakened man is cast. And as we read the gospel, and as people who've read this gospel for the first time begin to wonder, how will he respond? Will he live up to the promises spoken over him, or will he cave, collapsing as he supports structures are ripped from beneath him? Jesus in the wilderness faces a monumental test. And as we read this, we look at it through our cultural lens. Our society has a mixed relationship with tests and testing. Increasingly in education, we feel a discomfort with the pass-fail model. I was the first generation to move in BCE from where you got a sort of mark whether you pass or fail to this strange world where we didn't know whether we were passing or failing, we just had tried even if trying was quite pathetic. And sometimes I managed to achieve that. The pathetic pass, it was a wonderful thing. Most kids now get a prize, even when their performance doesn't warrant it. Pass the parcel has many layers of gifts. Our age aiming for equality dislikes the way that testing seems to create a hierarchy based on performance. Yet at the same time, we can't stop watching others go through tests and facing temptations. In the sporting arena, we are glued to scenarios and stories and competitions in which humans are tried and tested. We cheer for those who pass the test, but our greatest delight, if the popularity of reality TV tells us anything, seems to be our enjoyment in watching someone suffer the indignity of stumbling at the point of testing. Australian culture has this relationship with testing as well. We gain a sense of identity and meaning from stories of resilience under trial. From Australia's indigenous people's story of survival through harsh terrain or white settlement, to the testing under fire of Anzacs from the Battle of Gallipoli to the Kokoda Trail. We love the Aussie battler who tenaciously lives through something like the Great Depression or the 2020 bushfires with grit, stoicism, and a joke cracked in adversity. Yet at the same time, we're a nation that is risk-averse and which craves stability, comfort, and safety. Who are the first signs of a serious society-wide test move to quickly stockpile the softest of toilet paper. <laughs> in short, we love trials and tests but when they're happening to someone else. For tests are barometers of the human heart, a real-time diagnostic tool which cuts through the empty speech and all the spin and reveals the hidden. Yeah, tests build character, but they also reveal character. Maybe that's why we avoid them. This is why generations of believers are drawn to the gospel's accounts of Jesus in the wilderness. As we read, we wonder how will the Savior face this greatest of tests. Now, familiar readers of scriptures who begin to understand its nuances and patterns will realize that we've actually been here before. 
For in fact, this Bible is a compendium, a story, a collection of tests in which humans find themselves tested in a context which each time seems vaguely familiar. A human is separated from their community, sometimes it's a community, but often it's a lone human, and they're surrounded by these almost set pieces, trees. They're always at high places and often in God's presence. The book of Genesis' account of creation of the world introduces us to one of these tests. And this story we read as part of our Lenten reading this week, the first humans are tested by the entry of a serpent with a dangerous question into their garden home. And in this garden filled with flourishing and fruitfulness, this test presents a fork in the road. The flourishing of Eden and life in the presence of God is transformed in a moment as humans find themselves exiled from Eden and instead now reside in a wilderness devoid of rest, protection, and God's presence. Instead of flourishing, humans now flounder. The order as it existed is upended. The cause of this tragedy can be traced back to a decision, the response to a test, in which a path is chosen which opens up a world of consequences. And as much as our contemporary society runs from consequences, consequences are part of the fabric of reality. Adam and Eve find themselves in a test as the servant asks its question. They fail this test and choose a path which leads to a world of disaster and sin. And as Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. A direction was chosen at the fork in the road and a seed of destruction is planted out of which countless devastating shoots emerge. And in the midst of this test, there's something else, a temptation. A temptation exists within the container of the test. And temptation reveals even more clearly what is behind the facades and the veils. Tests reveal the true state of the human heart. Temptations attempt to change the human heart. They home in on that which is unredeemed in our hearts. They look for the place in which our heart's desires are disordered. And with a stunning accuracy, temptations seek the part of our hearts which resist God's way. For as James 1.14 states, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Tempters, both human and spiritual, understand that these unredeemed territories of our hearts are the leverage points with which you can steer a human taking those desires and stoking them. Father Maximus of Mount Athos was a 14th century monk who also went by the other wonderful name of Father Maximus the Hut Burner. (laughs) Had a habit of burning down the huts in which he lived. Now, he developed at this time a diagnostic tool to help us understand the spiritual dimensions that occur within us in the stages of temptation. 
He understood that temptation comes at that moment when there is a test and it's trying to then lure us into something else. You could say that temptation is the spoiler of the test. And he recognized that this goes through a set of phases. The first stage that he recognized, and this exists at almost any kind of temptation, this is not just for one kind of outcome, but this happens, is first of all, there is what he called the assault. The mind is attacked with an evil thought. A temptation is not someone grabbing your body and forcing you to do something against your will. That's not a temptation, that is coercion. Rather, temptation begins when you're put in a test and then you're assaulted with what Father Maximus called an evil thought. Stage two is then interaction. The person opens up a dialogue with that evil thought. Humans think all kinds of crazy things. Different thoughts come into our minds. Could I jump from the top of that window and break my ankle? These are the crazy thoughts, well, maybe just me. We have all the time. I once did think that outside my second story bedroom window, I think I was 14, my brother may have joined me, and I think we both jumped out, and it really, really hurt. (laughs) All of us have stupid thoughts, all of us have crazy thoughts, all of us have unwanted thoughts, but stage two, in a sense, elevates this. The person then opens up a dialogue with the evil thought. If you think about it in this way, the first stage is is a thought walking by. But the second stage is the thought walking by and saying, hang on, just a sec. Third stage then is consent. A person consents to do what the evil thought urges them to do. So if stage one is they're walking by, stage two is like, hang on, come over here. Stage three is handing over the car keys to the evil thought. Stage four then is captivity. A person becomes hostage to the evil thought, finding it more difficult to release, to resist. Again, to, if you think of it relationally, walking by, Stage two, come here. Stage three, entertain, build a relationship. Now, the relationship is going against me and that particular thought is running me. And then stage five, obsession. The evil thought becomes my evil thought. It's now entrenched in my reality. And the evil thought has gone from an external reality to now something which is driving me. Reflecting upon Father Maximus's tool, Kenneth Bower notes, stage one and two are temptations. No sin has yet been committed. So that's interesting. Stage one and two are not necessarily sins. Stage one, you're assaulted. Stage two, it may be just discerning. Hang on, what is this? But it's more that if you see someone, you say, hang on, who who are you? Do I know you? But then you realize that, hang on, there's something wrong with this person. Then we move up a phase in stage three. Stage three is the decision to sin, Kenneth Bower writes. Stage four follows and is the point when, having been defeated by the sin more than once, we've become its hostage. 
it'll be very difficult to avoid continuing in that sin. By the time we reach step, step five, the sin has become an ingrained habit. Now, this process transforms the test. Instead of it just being a binary choice, all of a sudden now we are captive. Not only suffering from the destructive effects of sin, but also not flourishing, not stepping into our calling and authority in Christ. The temptation, when we give into it, leaves us ineffective in our vocation and impotent in our God given mission. The psalmist, even in, in Psalm 66, verse 18, notes that when we cherish sin in our heart, and this is biblical language for giving into stage three and four and five, that when we do that, it actually prevents the Lord from hearing our prayers. And as Alexander Shemin wrote of Adam, which I think also relates to us in this, he writes that he ceased at the moment of the fall when, when Adam and Eve engaged in that process and said yes, that Adam ceased to be the priest of the world and became its slave. We give over our authority, we give over our identity, we give over our vocation, we give over our connection with God, we hand the credit card, the wallets, the deeds to the house, our education, our relationships, everything. And we go from having authority to actually becoming slave of the world, no longer bridging heaven and earth, we become simply just captive to earth, enslaved to that which we were called to have creative dominion over. Instead of being sowers of his kingdom, we spread the seed of destruction in our lives, the lives of those around us, and out into the world. How then, when we face a test, and we all face them, as much as we have tried to make our world smooth and unchallenging, where we can order things through our front door with the minimum of fuss, how, when a test comes before us, two roads, how do we make sure that in the midst of that, that we resist temptation? How do we pass the test? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humans. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Do you hear this? It's saying there is not going to be a temptation given to you, which there's no way out. Again, too, that would not be temptation, that would be coercion. There is always a way out. And to God's response to the test which Adam and Eve fail, and all humans fail, and we continue to fail, God's response to this great tragedy of sin, to this failed test of humanity, is not another approach. It's not a theory, a philosophy, a tactic, a personal improvement plan, a political platform, an ideology. Instead, what we see in this story of the temptation in the wilderness, it actually bookends what we're going to see on Good Friday, that what Jesus does is He places Himself at the center of the test. The answer is not resoluteness or resilience, or smarter critical thinking about how do we think well through tests. It's a person, it's Jesus. And so upon the cross, Jesus becomes sin so that we don't have to pay the price of sin. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can't earn this righteousness ourselves. It's given to us as a gift of grace. This grace, this seed planted in the center of our lives, in the center even of the tests that we face, brings not death but life. So as we attempted, Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us that we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. In the incarnation, where Jesus comes to earth, God in human form comes, not so he would remain distant, but walks through every test and trial and temptations that humans have so that he can understand us. This is an incredible love. And Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. And so in the wilderness, we discover Jesus showing obedience where humanity has shown rebellion. He chooses faithfulness where we choose betrayal. We follow Jesus as we walk this Lenten path, tracing his steps, because in doing so, we're reminded that we don't have to carry the burden. Instead, his burden is light. We just simply have to stay close to him, walking in his footsteps. In the moment of testing, we simply have to invite him in, place him at the center. Temptations will come. They came to Jesus, Scripture tells us, but he resisted because instead at stage two, after our minds had been assaulted by an evil thought, we don't open up a dialogue with that thought, communing with it, cherishing it, feeding it. Instead, at this point, we choose Jesus. Choose to commune with him, not the evil thought. To feed on every word which comes from the mouth of God, which was Jesus' response to the tempter. As Kenneth Bower reminds us, the Bible says we don't avoid sin by focusing on it, we avoid it by fixing our eyes upon Jesus, as we just sang. The other good news that we see from the story of the temptation is that by readers of the Gospels who knew Jewish history, early Jewish people in the first century who were hearing these Gospels, who knew how this story went, as soon as they saw someone going into the wilderness, their natural response is, this is going to result in failure. When Israel went into the wilderness, Moses received the Torah law of God upon the mountain. He comes down, and what are the people of God doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. So much of the Hebrew scriptures that come before the New Testament are filled with the people of God failing tests. Yet in the story of the temptation, we see something new. Jesus opens up a new pathway through his choice unseen and unknown. See, testing is the kiln into which pottery is placed. It can either crack or to be made into something of beauty. When we place Jesus at the center, we learn from this story that he begins to show us a new way. The tests that we experience need not lead to destruction. That temptation can be resisted with God and Jesus shows us how. The story of Jesus' temptation makes us ask, what can grow in the desert? And the answer of this story of Jesus in the wilderness is that what can grow in the desert is faithfulness, obedience, communion with God and flourishing. 
In the story of Eden, the failed test leads Adam and Eve from the flourishing garden, the blooming garden, out into the desert places. But what Jesus does in the story of the temptation, he reverses this. It begins in the wilderness, and Jesus shows us a path which leads to resurrection morning, when Mary, discovering the risen Jesus, mistakes him for a gardener, a detail which is so important, because what Jesus is doing is building a new garden in the world. And so from the wilderness, blooming can happen when we place Jesus at the center, place him in the midst of our temptations, choose to commune with him, not the thoughts that come against us. Right kingdom, Jesus-centered choices are seeds out of which flourishing will bloom. And so, all of us, all of us, have either just faced a test, facing a test, or will face tests. As a community, what we're seeing in the world is that the world of comfort and just-in-time delivery and things arriving at your door, that may continue, but it's not going to take away what humans as individuals and communities have always faced, which is great challenges and tests. And so when tests come, we need to reframe them and see what God wants to birth out of them. Some of you in this room are somewhere on that continuum of one to five that hundreds of years ago, Father Maximus pointed out. Some of you are being assaulted with a thought. That's just a thought. Others are dialoguing with it. Others are communing with it. Others are entrapped by it. Others have no other thought where you don't know your thoughts from the tempting thought anymore. You don't know who you are and what's it. And in the midst of that, I want to say to you, that Jesus in the story of the temptation in the wilderness shows you that there is a way out, but he is the way out. And we need to place him at the center. And we as a church in this moment of challenge, be it secularism or COVID-19, that in the midst of this, God can spring and bloom wonderful things. Let's stand.